Greetings, brothers. Uh, welcome to the Amen Bible study, and and of all things, to the the very last study in this series on the Book of Genesis. What an incredible pilgrimage we have been on, uh, where we have begun in chapter one with with the creation of the world, chapter two, the creation of of man and woman, and then chapter three, the fall. And uh, in that fall, in that, in that horrible news of, of, of the sin that has, has broken the relationship between man and God and the curses that is brought on the creation, God announces what we call in theology the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. And he, and he sets up the, the trajectory of the rest of the book of Genesis as well as the trajectory of the history of the world. When he says the the seed of the serpent will strike against the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That's a prophecy of Christ coming. But in the meantime, he says there's going to be great conflict. The devil is going to try his best to destroy the seed through which the Messiah will come. And we see that conflict throughout uh, the book of Genesis and and uh, and throughout the rest of the Bible, and when and when the devil's not directly doing it, he's he's doing it indirectly through the sin and the foolishness of uh, of the people of God. But even at the end of this book, uh, before the people come into the promised land, before the their slavery for 430 years, we see the God of redemption at work. We see the gospel fulfilling. We see the fulfillment of that gospel promise that God will get the victory over sin, death, and the devil. So we'll dive in here in these, in these, this kind of long chapter. Again, we'll read the whole thing, but I'll point it out as we, as we go along with the points that I'm making. And I want this to begin this way. All along the way in this study, with uh, as you've heard it from Todd, as you've heard it from Barton and from me, we see Christ throughout Scripture. We don't read him into Scripture. Scripture is intended to, to prepare us for him, to reveal him. And especially in these, these last chapters in 37 to 50, with the, the story of Joseph occupying the largest part of the book, we see a, a very clear picture of what Christ is coming to do. You can think of it in Joseph and that he is the he is the innocent one who has who is betrayed and sold into slavery and and yet becomes the one who 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 saves the whole world. If that's not a picture of Christ, there isn't one and God intended to, to prepare his people for that idea that he would use one man's suffering uh, to save the world. But we know because Joseph died at the end of this book, Joseph himself gives indication that he knows he's not the Messiah. He, he, he wants to be transported to that promised land where the, where the salvation through Christ is going to occur. But I want us to see, especially in chapter 50, 
the work of Christ for us. Again, not an allegory of Joseph and Jesus, but a story written by God as he is crafting history in order to show us the kind of redemption we would have through Christ the Messiah. And in this Advent season, we are especially prone to think of queued up, to think about that fulfillment of Isaiah's promise, that he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. I want to focus on those last two titles that Jesus, Emmanuel, would fulfill, that he is the Prince of Peace and he's the Everlasting Father. And you must accept him in those roles. And if you do, there will be not only life everlasting, but there will be life in this world that continues on into the next. Well, that first point is the Prince of Peace. Where do we see in this story of Joseph and the last days of Joseph, where do we see that uh, we are being prepared for Christ to be our Prince of Peace. I'll take up uh, verses 15 to 21, first of all, the middle of the passage. You know, it's interesting that this passage is, is flanked by death and burial, and that's the point that we'll make at the end, uh, the second main point, uh, that he is in those passages being revealed as the everlasting Father, the Father of hope. But in 15 to 21, I want us to think about him as the Prince of Peace. You know, uh, we are, we find ourselves in these brothers, don't we? Because uh, when they're, when the brothers, when their father dies, that's recorded here in verses 1 to 14, the death of Jacob. When their father dies, Jacob, Israel, the brothers default to their old survival tactics again. Their own efforts at self-justification, their own efforts at self-salvation. And we do too, don't we? Instead of embracing the Prince of Peace, instead of embracing the words that the Prince of Egypt, Joseph, pronounced and proved to them, they default to their self-salvation. There are several ways that they do so in this, in this passage. And I, I want to show you from verses 15 to 21 uh, the difference between self-salvation or trying to live by law and living by the gospel according to the Prince of Peace. First, uh, the first point under this major heading of Prince of Prince of Peace is, is law. And, and the, the brothers illustrate living by law, living by self-salvation in uh, two ways. Number one, they default to manipulation. Verses 15 to 17, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father Jacob was dead, they said, it, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. 
And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Now, what are they doing here? They, when, when Jacob dies, they say, you know, there's no reason that Joseph's going to be good to us anymore. He's only being good to us because of our father Jacob. So uh, we've got to come up with a plan. And there's every indication that they lied about this. Jacob and Joseph were very close. Joseph was with his father as he was dying. And surely if Jacob had uh, wanted to give a message to Joseph, forgive your brothers, he would have told him personally. He wouldn't have told these scoundrels. He wouldn't have trusted to these, this bumbling group here to get a message to Joseph. No, he, he would have told him himself. But he didn't do that because he didn't need to. He knew he didn't need to. Joseph had made it clear that he had forgiven his brothers. In chapter 45, verses uh, 1 to 15 or so, Joseph rebukes his brothers. In verse 5 of chapter 45, he rebukes his brothers for, for continuing to think that he is going to, he's going to harm them. He assures them that he's going to forgive them. He gives them every indication of his intention to bless them. And yet when push comes to shove, when their backs, when they think their backs are against the wall, they, they think it better to trust in their own resources than the grace of the one who has proven to be the Prince of Peace to them. Now, isn't that the same thing we do? Aren't we constantly trying to, to save ourselves, not just, not just to save ourselves eternally. I mean, now, if you're not a Christian today and you haven't accepted Christ's gift of righteousness, then, then that's what you're doing. You're, you're trying to save yourself. You're trying to ensure your eternal future, but that's not going to work out for you very well. But Christians do the same thing. As Christians, even though we know that Christ is the Prince of Peace, for some insane reason, we think that our resources are more to be trusted than God's. Okay, we can't trust Him. You know, it's, it's okay to trust Him when things are going pretty well, but my goodness, when you're in a pandemic, it's okay to trust Him while, you know, when, uh, on the weekend. But, you know, during the week in the, in the dog-eat-dog business world or professional world, you can't, you can't trust him. You've got to take things in. You've got to take matters into your own hands. Don't live like that. There's no need to. You must not. He is the Prince of Peace. You go to him with whatever your needs are. Make them known to him as he's told you to. Seek first his kingdom. All these things will be added to you. And there's no need to cheat for what you need. There's no need to, there's no need to lie. There's no need to manipulate. You go to him. The one who has proven the Father's love for you by dying for you. Well, we default. We default uh, to our manipulations. And we also tend to default, even as Christians, to our merit somehow thinking that God grades, grades on a curve and that, and that when we do sin, that the way we, the way we deal with it is to, is to make up for it. Or when we're uh, on a good day, when we're feeling pretty good about ourselves, we say, you know, I know I'm a sinner, but I'm not a sinner like him, like her. 
I know I've done some bad things, but they're on the inside. Nobody can see them. They're social, largely socially acceptable things or things that other people do. But th what he did over there, what she does, what they've done to me. You see, we can often say that we believe in salvation by grace, but live as those who believe in salvation by works, even by putting that on ourselves or putting it on other people. You could think of the, the prodigal son who did the same thing. Remember the prodigal son who demanded his inheritance and he ran off into the far country and he sinned his fill and he, he, he lost all of his money. He's, he's, he's uh, envious of the pigs and their slop. And uh, he says, I'm gonna go back to, I'm gonna go back to my father. He's, I, he's, he, the text says, Jesus says when he came to his senses, but I think that's ironic. I don't think he meant that he really was coming to his senses. Instead, he said he, he developed his plan for how he was going to be accepted back into the father's household. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to tell him I want to be a servant. I want to be a slave. The prodigal son comes running back to his father. His father grabs him. He runs up on the on the, uh, you know, he sees him from afar, he runs up on the hill, he grabs him, and he embraces him. And the son tries to, you know, he starts his speech. Father, I would, I want to, and his father stops him. His father will not allow him to complete his speech. I want to be a servant, I want to be a slave. His father interrupts him and he says, bring the fatted calf, bring the ring, bring the robe. The son of mine was dead, now he's alive. He was lost, now he's found. And we're gonna throw a party for him. He's going to be welcomed into my house by grace or not at all. Your father says the same thing. Don't try to live by law. The letter of the law kills. Live by the gospel, which takes us to the next point in verses 19 to 21. Notice how Joseph responds. Joseph begins weeping. And he says, and as he's, the, the text says in verse 18, his brothers came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. Uh, reminiscent? I mean, isn't that what, isn't that just what, isn't that just what the, isn't that just what the prodigal son said? I want to be your servant. We're going to be your, this is the way you're going to accept us, Joseph. We'll be your slaves. But Joseph said to them, do not fear. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. What does the Prince of Peace, what is, what is Joseph, what kind of savior is God preparing us for? He's preparing us through Joseph for a savior who drives out fear. Verses 19 and 21, do not be afraid, do not fear. He says it twice. Now, whenever God says, do not fear in the Bible, he always accompanies it with this promise. Do not fear because I am with you. 
Only be strong and courageous, he told Joshua. Do not tremble or be afraid, for the Lord your God is with you. He never tells us, just don't be afraid. Drive out that, that negative energy of fear. He says, here's the reason you must not be afraid. You must not be afraid because I'm with you. And Joseph is saying that to his, his brothers. Do not be afraid. I am with you. I'm the one who saved you in the first place. I'm the one who will keep you from all else. Jesus is with us. Do not be afraid. Secondly, he defeats evil. This is how he serves as our Prince of Peace. He defeats evil. This, this is a gorgeous verse, isn't it? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. God, our sovereign God, is a sovereign redeemer. What is even the evil intentions of men? God, he doesn't, he doesn't sponsor them, he doesn't author them, but he orchestrates them. He co-ops them and makes them part of his purposes. You intended to kill me, to torture me by sending me to Egypt, by selling me into slavery. God reached into that prison, took me out. He gave me favor. He raised me up to this place to bring salvation to you, literally, to you and your family and all my people because of the famine. And while Joseph isn't entirely clear about it yet, he's, he, he used this evil to save the world, to save the Jews, to save the line of Judah, so that through it the life of the Messiah would come. This is the, a point made in Scripture as well in the New Testament. Peter, while Peter is preaching at Pentecost, he says in, in Acts chapter 2, and uh, verse, let's see, where is it, 32, is it, is it 23, 23. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 23, he says to these, to whom he's preaching, men of Israel, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now we often talk about that mystery of the intersection between the the responsibility of people and the sovereignty of God or man's free agency and the sovereignty of God. Here these, these come with each other without any detailed explanation, but, but uh, he says by divine authority, you are going to be, you, you are guilty for handing him over to be crucified. But God ultimately orchestrated it for the salvation of the world. Now focusing on that, that sovereignty of God and redemption helps Peter later on in chapter four. When they're being persecuted, persecution starts and they're gonna put him in prison and they're gonna tell him to quit preaching the gospel and so forth. Peter says, uh, says out loud, my, my wife would call it verbally processing. He starts verbally processing his faith. Now are we gonna be afraid of these people? Are we going to quit preaching? No, we're not. The God who orchestrated saving the world through the crucifixion of Christ, can he not 
orchestrate this too for the forward movement of his kingdom. It, it helps. It really helps to verbalize what we know to be true. And we know that God is the one who drives out fear and the God who delivers from even destroys evil. And the third point under gospel is that um, this grace, this gospel, is not giving to, given to us begrudgingly, but it's given to us and distilled from a heart of mercy. Verse 18, Joseph, when his brothers, when his brothers come to him and say, we, they, they feel it necessary to lie and they feel it necessary to, to manipulate and they, they find it necessary to, to try to sell themselves into slavery. Joseph weeps, why? He, he weeps on the one hand out of anger that this kind of, this kind of self-salvation still has such a grip on his, on his brother's heart. But then he weeps as well with, with mercy. We see that kind of mixture in Jesus at the, heart, at the tomb of Lazarus. He, he wept, and the word used there is a combination of anger and sorrow. He is, he's angry at what death has done to the world, and he's, he's sorrowful that his, his, his brother is dead, his friend is dead. I want you to hear Jesus weeping over you today, as he did over the, over the city of Jerusalem, weeping that, that we are so slow to believe and to trust in him. Come to him. Come to him. He will never fail to be a savior. You know, in the, the early 1900s, uh, Argentina and Chile were uh, battling over the border between them, who was in charge of it. And the border as it runs over the Andes Mountains. And finally, uh, as diplomatic relations were, a diplomatic uh, solution was being sought for curing that battle, they brought in the clergy. And finally, when a peace treaty was made between Chile and uh, Argentina. They decided that they would set up a, a memorial to the peace that they believed Christ had brought between their two nations. They made a, they made a, a, a monument called the Christ the Redeemer of the Andes. And here's what, here's what is written at the bottom of that memorial. Sooner shall these mountains crumble into dust then the Argentines and the Chileans break the peace sworn at the feet of Christ the Redeemer. It's a beautiful expression. Sooner shall these, these mountains fall, these, these Andes mountains fall into the heart of the sea than these two nations should war against each other ever again after having made a peace treaty at the feet of Christ the Redeemer. It's a beautiful expression, but it doesn't offer much comfort, actually. Because if either of those nations decided to go to war with the other, they would do it. They're not going to let any statue stop them. But Jesus Christ has died, and he has been raised to life. And the, the warfare 
between God and us is over. He is our Prince of Peace. You must go to him with whatever your need is. Allow him to drive out your fear. Believe that he gives you his love joyfully, without regret. Go boldly to him. Now, I want to say one other thing from this passage, the, the, and it's the bulk of the passage. Uh, it, it, more space is occupied by these verses. I think the heart of the passage is what I've just given you, but we've got it. We need to cover these other verses because they hold God's truth for us as well. And and so I'm going to I'm going to group uh, verses one to. 14 and 22 to 26 under this one major heading that this reveals Christ as the as one who is one or united with the everlasting father that is when you see Christ as he said you have seen the father and he's not just any father but he is a father who gives you hope for the future uh, look first of all at the blessed the blessed life of the patriarch um, Joseph. This blessed life. Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. What do we see about Christ here uh, bringing to us the blessings of the Father? Well, we first of all see that, that we, we see our union with Christ. That by Christ uniting us to himself, he secures our reconciled relationship with the Father. Uh, what do I mean? Well, he, he adopted his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren. They were the grandchildren of Manasseh. They were the son of Machir. Now, Joseph adopted them in order to ensure their inheritance. Now, I don't know why he didn't adopt the other Children, I don't know why he, he didn't do this kind of thing for others. But, but this is recorded. Maybe he did adopt all the rest of them. But at least this is recorded to, to tell us one thing. These children, these great-grandchildren, will inherit. The, 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 this line will inherit the line, the, 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 the promised land. We've been adopted by the Father by being united to Christ. And the land that is promised to them is, is a foretaste, a, a, a prefigurement of the eternal inheritance that we have. So we must believe in our um, union with Christ, that our, our relationship with the Father is secured by his by our being united to him and thus adopted. And, and then we must live out that union with Christ. How did Joseph do it? Joseph lived it out, that confidence uh, that God was going to fulfill his promise. He lived it out by telling it to the next generation. 
You and I must do the same. We must pass it on to the next generation. And he lived it out in front of his children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren, by showing mercy, by showing forgiveness. Can your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, can't they read the gospel in your life by the way you, by the way you are, by what you're telling them, but also by what you're showing them? Second thing I want you to see, take a big idea from these remaining verses, is not just the patriarch's blessed life, but the patriarch's blessed death. Verses uh, 25 and 26, and this is reflective as well of verses 1 and 1 to 14, which has a great deal of focus on on the death of Jacob and, and the lament that is extended for him, the care that is given to bury him in the promised land. Um, that, that confidence in God's promise and, and that, that, that hope that Joseph expressed by the way he buried Jacob is also expressed in the way he gives directions for his own death, the way he lives into his death and the directions he gives for his body after death. I, I want us to think about that because, you know, this is a strange thing for us. We don't often, we don't give a lot of intentional thought to our dying well. But this was, this was a common practice in the old world. In the, in medieval times and, and uh, up to the time of the reformers as well. Ars moriendi, the Latin, the Latin words means, meaning the art of dying. Ars moriendi texts were common. That is, how people wrote down their instructions or their ideas and their to themselves and then for for those coming after them, they they wrote down how they wanted to how they wanted to approach death, what they wanted to happen uh, while they were dying, and and what they wanted done with their body after they were dying. Now we have living, living wills and and uh, and uh, medical directives and so forth. That's that's good. That's good planning. That should be done. But we should give more thought as well every day. To, to the inevitable. We're going to die. And, uh, you know, when you, when you hurt yourself or when you get hurt or when, you, when you're sick, even if it's not a serious illness, you should spend a few moments thinking, now, what, if, if this were a terminal illness, what would I start doing today? With whom would I reconcile? Who would I plead with to come to Christ? What arrangements would I make to take care of my family or 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 bless my church or or bless someone else or something in my community? What 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 should I write down right now to make sure it is read someday? The art of dying well. So, and not as an end in itself, but 
but as a testimony to others. Follow me. Follow me into that promised land. That's what Joseph is doing. He doesn't think just of his own eschatology, his own death, himself. But he says, I want you to embalm me and put me in a coffin. Don't put me in a, a pyramid. You know, he would have had a pyramid built just for him. I don't want to be in a pyramid because this is not my home. I'm going on to the promised land. Put me in a coffin because someday you're going to leave this place and I want to go with you. He gives directions. I want to urge you. I want to urge you to, to live well, to finish well, to die well. And to think right now, those things that you would do if you knew you were going to die, there are probably a lot of them that you should you should go ahead and do right now. If there's somebody you would start reconciling with, then you need to start right now. Live to the end. Don't, don't die before you die. Live to the very end. Final thing, final two points I want to make, and rather briefly, is one is don't neglect burial. I have I've written on this subject and I've I've preached on it elsewhere. We don't have time to cover it in detail here, but I would I, I just I, I don't want to be legalistic about this, but I want to urge you, those of you who have who say that you're going to be cremated, let me urge you to rethink that. Not because it's a an unforgivable sin, or I know why most of you are trying. I've walked with many people down this road. I know most of you are saying, I don't want to burden my my family with the cost of burial and so forth. But you know what I found is that most parents or grandparents, when they talk to their 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 loved ones and say, you know, would you rather be be buried? It's going to cost some money, or to be cremated, it only costs a little bit less, actually. But um, uh, which would you want? Most families are going to say, oh, we, would, we would like to spend a bit more money because we want you, we need you to be buried. Why, why, do, why is that instinctive to us? Christians throughout the ages have buried their own. It's... Uh, um, in fact, the, the, the gospel made progress in the first century by Christians digging bodies, even non-Christians, out of the trash heaps and giving them a dignified burial. It's, it's historically been pagans and non-Christians who have, who have shown such, such, dis, uh, such um, disregard and hatred for the body that they burn it. But the body is a gift from the Lord. He crafted it. He made it. We haven't known you in any other way except by your, through your, your body. It's a great privilege as a pastor to shepherd someone alive in a body to the place that they are with dignity put into a, a coffin and then taken and tucked into the ground. It's a uniquely human thing to bury the dead, and it's a witness to the coming resurrection. It's very difficult to say with, with any kind of conviction 
uh, any way that makes real sense to ordinary human beings about ashes to talk about the resurrection. Can God bring someone back from the ashes? Of course he can. But to attach the promise of the resurrection of the body to a body in that burial service is something uniquely powerful. I've seen it over and over and over again. Third thing I'd say about burial is that do it as an Ebenezer, as a rock of remembrance. We are people of place. We, everything we experience is in a place. Every momentous event in our life we identify with a place. And when we, we lose a loved one, it's helpful to us who grieve to return to a place where that loved one is. I've seen it time and again, the difficulty left for those grieving when ashes are spread all over the place and, and the, the, the loved ones have difficulty uh, uh, finding a, some resolution uh, getting that kind of that kind of healing and comfort that occurs as we return to the place where we've laid a loved one to rest and and from and knowing from that literal place Christ will retrieve them into glory I don't want to make any of you feel bad who have chosen chosen uh, um, a cremation for your loved ones. Sometimes there's, it's very necessary. It's a merciful thing to do for, for cost purposes or for transportation. Or, But if there's time for you to change your plans, I just want to urge you to think about it as a testimony for succeeding generations. Well, what does all this mean for the way we live in this world? It means we live in defiant hope. With the Prince of Peace and the Everlasting Father, we can live with defiant hope. I, when I was, uh, when I taught seminary in St. Louis, I had a student from a place called Times Beach. It was um, a little bit southwest of, um, of St. Louis. And Times Beach was uh, judged by the government at one point to uh, be contaminated and uh, no longer habitable because of dioxins. And so the whole, the whole area, it was a, it was a, a mostly blue collar area um, and, and simple small houses along the river. It was a very, very beautiful place. And people were, were very proud of their community. They were a tight knit community. The government came in and said, we're gonna, all of this for your own good, we're condemning all of this. You have to move, we'll help you move, we'll help you fund that and so forth. And then we're gonna demolish all of these houses. We're gonna plow it under and then we're ultimately going to incinerate it all. I had a, I had a student uh, from Times Beach I asked one time, I said, what, you know, how did you, 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 from the time the government said your property was condemned to the time when it actually occurred, then what did, uh, how did, what impact did that make on the community? He said a lot of people just quit doing any maintenance to their houses, let them run down. Um, but he said, you know, Christians on the whole continue to mow their yards and plant flowers 
and paint their homes and repair their homes. He said it was, a, it was an act of defiant hope. Yeah, they knew their house was going to be, but in the meantime, they were going to live with a testimony to the hope of the gospel, ultimately, that says we can pursue beauty, we can pursue hope, we can be courageous in this life because the Prince of Peace is the one who is sovereign over sin, death, and the devil, and the everlasting Father has made infallible promises to us in Christ. Embrace him, brothers. Cling to him, and he will never disappoint you. Amen.